Uh, e. Jean Carroll here, and I'm a journalist, and I was a friend of Hunter S. Thompson, and on his birthday, I flew to Colorado. I called Hunter from the Woody Creek Tavern phone, and I said, Hunter, I'm here. I'm writing your biography. Come pick me up. And why was I writing Hunter's biography? Well, <laughs> two reasons. First, because he was the greatest degenerate of the 20th century. And he was also, at the same time, one of America's greatest journalists. Um, more journalists today, more working journalists today, uh, have copied Hunter Thompson's style uh, than any other writer in history, uh, including Hemingway. Hunter had such an impact on modern journalism, um, we are still writing like Hunter. Um, so, and he was my friend. So, Hunter comes and picks me up 20 minutes later in the big red shark. That's this huge fire apple red Pontiac with the big top down and the big engine rumbling. And uh, you can hear what happened right after he picked me up. Uh, the drinking of the chartreuse, the guns, the peacocks, Hunter freeing my nipple. You can, re you can hear all about that in part one part one uh, of this uh, biography. This happens to be part two, you lucky dogs, because uh, today we're going to hear about what made Hunter Hunter. We're going to hear about Hunter Thompson's childhood. Um, and it is uh, an amazing, um, <laughs> it's an amazing history. What created America's greatest degenerate. What created that? Where do you think he's from? Uh, what do you think his parents were like? Um, so we're going to uh, begin. I interviewed everybody who knew him. And so here, uh, here we're going to, the first person we're going to hear from is a neighbor, a childhood neighbor, who, uh, of course, asked not to be named. He, he said, Hunter was like Charles Manson. He had his followers. Hunter was a force to be reckoned with. I am telling you, he had a little reign of terror. We would quake at the sight of him. He would always travel in little groups of twos and threes, and you would always try to catch a little shot before you walked outside to see if Hunter was around. He would swagger. He was in perpetual motion. Today, we would use the term ADAH, uh, hyperactive. Everybody thought Hunter would end up in prison or dead. Uh, he was fearless. He knew power and structure. He was manipulative. And if he wasn't the top banana of the game, the game changed. That is the neighbor describing Hunter. Are you ready for this? At seven years old. Um, Here's John Bruton, another childhood friend of Hunter. 
Hunter was the pole around which trouble would occur. He was a good-looking boy who could outthink you and outperform you. But I believe he had great sadness. He was a serious, important child. He was chairman of the board of our gang. He knew how to bestow attention. His approval was extremely important because he had so many skills. And so you spent your whole time bouncing up and down, waiting for Hunter to approve. He's describing, by the way, now a seven or eight-year-old boy. I remember, says John Bruton, there was a lot of stress involved in being around Hunter. Uh, We can all attest to that, let me tell you. Anybody who's, any editor, any uh, politician who's worked with Hunter understands the stress involved in being around Hunter. You didn't want to cross Hunter. He would become physical, aggressive, physically violent with his fists and kicking. He was well-coordinated and also very effective. He would win. He would rile everybody up, and then he'd go at him like a windmill. Remember, we're talking about a seven or probably at this stage, maybe an eight-year-old. He would rile everybody up. He'd go at him like a windmill. He had a bad temper as a child. He also had this way of standing outside any problem. So he never got caught right there. Is why Hunter could stand outside anything and then write about it. and was brilliant. Uh, he never got caught. Well, <clears throat> he didn't get caught as an eight-year-old, but we're going to hear what, what happened to him in high school. Lying was the best thing he did. <laughs> he did it with total cool and total confidence. And all of you are smiling who've read Hunter's, um, work about the the McGovern campaign when he (laughs) was going to slip Ibocaine. He made up a drug. He made up the name of a drug called Ibocaine. He was going to slip it to the enemy. He did a whole story about, you know, uh, people being addicted to Ibocaine. Um, It is a, he could, he could spin a yarn very quickly and everybody fell for it. So here's Jim Thompson, uh, Hunter's youngest, youngest brother. There are three Thompson boys, Hunter, oldest, Davison, second, and Jim was the third, uh, kid. And Jim Thompson says, I was afraid of the guy and I still am. Always unnerved by his presence, always minding my P's and Q's, always watching my step. Why? To my knowledge, all he ever did was twitch my ears at the dining room table he did it until i was ready to kill him i pleaded with everybody at the table can anybody do anything about this guy and it used to take until i was actually ready to burst into tears and my mother would say hunter for god's sakes uh and when she was really mad she'd say damn it and every oh we're gonna hear about the mother in a little bit the mother is a piece of work uh and everybody would freeze but that's the only contact, the phys- only physical contact we had. We had dinner every night at a large dining room table set with mats and fine china. We always ate in the dining room uh, and never ate in the kitchen, Jim says. Uh, and here's uh, <laughs> Virginia Thompson, Hunter's wife, uh, mother. Hunter, she says, was difficult from the moment of his birth. Judy Wellens Whitehead, a very good friend of Hunter's throughout his life, and knew him as a practically, well, they were both two and three years old together. He was always a pain in the ass, she says. When World War II was going on, 
see, here's the thing. Hunter was born, uh, in 1939. Hunter, um, went through, he was a World War II. He lived through World War II. Um, so when World War, Judy says, when World War II is going on, we had to be about five or six years old, maybe. And I went over to visit Hunter and I had this stupid doll that was something made out of a thin plywood, just, you know, this cutout doll. They didn't have many, many, didn't have any dolls during the Second World War because all the fabric and all the plastic and all the uh, material went for making, as you know, uh, uh, guns and boats and uniforms for the soldiers that went on to save democracy, uh, by the way. Anyway, so she just has this thin plywood doll with the clothes painted on. And she reminds us that you didn't get toys in those days. And so I go, she says, I go over to see Hunter and he grabs my doll and smashes it over a tree. <laughs> John Bruton, uh, another childhood friend says, I remember the Thompson family was looked down on because they weren't nice people in the sense that when the parents were where the parents were concerned, nobody thought of calling Mrs. Thompson or Mr. Thompson. Uh, they weren't social. Uh, they really kept to themselves. Uh, John Bruton says, all I remember is that there was despair of Hunter because Hunter was incorrigible and you couldn't do anything about it because you couldn't talk to his mother. It was the kind of thing that, you know, you would never, you know, he was getting away with murder and you couldn't call Mrs. Uh, Thompson's, Mrs. Thompson and Mrs. Thompson couldn't control her boy. She could never, John Bruton says, cope with Hunter. She was, hey, listen, listeners, anybody out there? Y'all know you couldn't, nobody could control Hunter. Nobody, zero, nobody, uh, nobody. Anyway, so um, John Bruton goes on. She could never cope with Hunter. She was a sort of a weak and dithery woman, a sort of a desperate, ineffectual woman. Uh, we're going to hear from somebody else who disagrees with this. I remember her as just covered with woe. The house itself was just messy, but she had a droll sense of humor. My own mother did not like Hunter, which, of course, added uh, to the appeal of Hunter. Um, and here's from Porter Bibb. By the way, the people we're hearing from are very fancy people. Uh, Hunter was born and raised in Louisville, and we're talking to the fancy people of Louisville, uh, Porter Bibb here, which we're about, he, Porter went to Yale. Porter is this, uh, great grand, great, great grandson of, of a grandmother who was Clark, you know, Lewis and Clark's, um, founded that, yes, that Lewis and Clark. Um, Porter was uh, the first publisher of Rolling Stone and, um, He's a financier now. So Porter says, let's say Hunter was not born into enormous affluence. And the Louisville we both grew up in was so free form in the 40s and 50s. The fabric of society was tearing. The whole business of integration, the whole influx of industry started corrupting this very sleepy, stable world of Southern society. 
that lasted through the Second World War. And then all of a sudden, all bets were off. Everything was exploding. The city was growing at a phenomenal rate. The old institutions were being fragmented and decentralized. And there was absolutely nothing you could hang your hat on. Ginny Daniels, and by the way, that is not her real name. She asked not to have her real name uh, uh, mentioned. Louisville, she says, Louisville is a tight-ass town. Hunter, Walter Kagey, Ching Terrell, Neville Blakemore, uh, Duke Rice, Judy Nillens, they all live in these very large houses on Willow. John Bruton's house was enormous. His parents had a chauffeur. We all lived in what we now call the Cherokee Triangle. It was 11 or 12 streets, old frame houses, big trees, big yards like yuppies and preppies live in the Triangle now. And there are a lot of old guards still there. And they just kept it up. Hunter lived on Randall in a stucco house with a big front porch. Uh, Here's Gerald Terrell. Uh, Gerald Terrell, he's actually called Ching Terrell because he was born in China. We wouldn't call him Ching Terrell today, but his father was a diplomat. He was born in China, and um, uh, he he tells us Ching was very important in Hunter's life, uh, saved him a couple of times. And uh, Ching says when his father was alive, he used to sit on the front porch with his little radio and watch us play in the front yard. His dad was a lot older. Uh, Hunter was, uh, uh, Hunter's mother was his father's second marriage. And he was, uh, he was retired. He was white haired, stone faced guy who didn't say much. Uh, Joe goes on. He was a big sports fan. He would listen to the Louisville Colonels baseball team sitting on the porch. I think Hunter respected him. His mother had no power over uh, over Hunter, but had great influence. His father could discipline him right up to the end. Walter Kagey, Walter Kagey, of course, went on to Harvard, became, you know, the well-known, famous professor of history at the University of Chicago. And Walter Kagey says, I remember uh, Hunter's father may have occasionally whipped Hunter. I mean, in those days, and... You know, implying that's what you did in those days. And well, I was whipped a couple of times. Yeah, my mother get out the yardstick. Anyway, uh, Walter Kagey says, I think his father used a razor strap. I recall Hunter using the term whipped in the snozzle. Uh, so I say to Hunter, Hunter, tell me about your father. Long silence. And I say, Hunter, you'd never talk about it. And Hunter says to me, well, read what I've written. And I say, well, Hunter, I've read everything you've written, and you never mentioned your father. Long silence. Tell me about him, Hunter, I say. Well, says Hunter, he had a great outlook on life. And that's all I got from Hunter about his father. So Gerald Terrell, Ching Terrell, says... We played war at Walter Keggy's house. We had helmets, helmet liners, sorry. We had helmet liners. We would put them on like we were little soldiers. And we'd go over to Walter's and he'd make us java. You know, we'd drink some java, 
because you know why they were doing this because the soldiers they'd see films from World War II and the soldiers were always being served uh, coffee. Uh, actually, it was tea, and we made it very sweet, full of milk. Well, you know, just like soldiers, see. Uh, and we all had armies and lead soldiers, Second World War guys. At one point, we made tanks in Hunter's basement out of wooden blocks with great spikes for cannons. And we also had places where we could hide our soldiers inside. And then we'd go over to Neville Blakemore's house and played war with him and stole all his good soldiers. Neville was very rich. Uh, stole all Neville's good soldiers. Uh, we put them in the body in the bodies of our tanks. And there was a machine gunner. And, okay, he goes on and on about their t- playing. So here's Walter uh, Kage, uh the history professor who went to Harvard. The 40s, after all, were very different from the 50s or the 60s. Remember that. Hunter went through World War II. Isn't that strange to think? Um, There were scrap metal drives. We collected grease. There were air raid drills. Well, we all remember, you know, duck and cover. Um, And these kids were going through air air raid drills and blackouts. Looking at the culture of boys in that period, there was a radio culture, a comic book culture. We used to listen to Sergeant Preston. Oh, my God. I have a picture with Sergeant Preston. I have a picture with Sergeant Preston and Yukon King, his great dog. Anyway, there was a whole cowboy culture. The Lone Ranger. Oh, they're talking. These are my people. Uh, The Lone Ranger. Television did not exist. We went to the movies on Saturdays, the matinee, and we boys had a code of honor among ourselves. We had rules. They were not imposed by need. They were very strong. In fights, Hunter's technique was always to provoke action and then do something startling to throw the other person off balance. Physically as well as psychologically. You know, this is brilliant. This is how his journalism was. He would throw the reader off balance. Um, he created, Hunter created situations of confusion and perhaps even fright or disorientation. Totally came over into his journalism. Anybody who's read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas knows exactly. He, that's how he writes. That's how he writes. Um, in the wars, there would usually be five or six boys to a side. We were usually bare-chested and wore helmet liners, uh, army su- surplus from the war- World War II, and carried Daisy air rifles. Damn, this is dangerous. BB guns and, of course, rocks. A lot of Louisville had le- veget- uh, vegetation. Lots of squirrels, rabbits, minks, and there were places for ambushes. There was a woods near us. There were plenty of rocks. Our mothers were terrified because, of course... You can get blinded by a BB gun. You know what, uh, uh, listener, uh, my brother, Tom. Tom, are you listening? Because remember that time you shot through the bathroom window and got me? It missed my eye by about a half an inch. Um, And the rocks, of course, (laughs) these guys threw rocks. So, Well, you can kill one another with a rock. But this was Kentucky, says Walter Kage. And Hunter is very Kentucky. And Kentucky is a violent place. You're telling us? Look at the senators from Kentucky right now. 
Oh, my God. Okay, so Terrell, uh, Ching Terrell says, and we all got bullwhips. Uh, and then we talked about the bullwhips. And then Walter Kagey says, that hat he often wears in pictures. I think I'm running that hat right now. On um, I'm running a photo of that hat right now on Colin. Uh, uh, that's why I picked that photo because Walter K says that hat he often wears in pictures is the same style as the Confederate cavalry hat that goes all the way back to elementary school. He was a tall boy with high cheekbones. Certainly by the fifth grade, he was wearing that Confederate hat flapped in the autumn months. I remember he wore a zip brown leather jacket. I also remember him wearing an army jacket with an insignia on it. And the boys would wear the Cub Scout uh, shirt without pants, which tended to look like a cavalry uniform. We did a lot of reading in the Highland Branch Library. This was just after World War II and before the Korean War. Well, I remember the Korean War. Well, I made bandages for it. And we boys just constantly, constantly read about war. Um, are you all putting this together? Do you realize the people who are in power right now, all the old people, this is what they, uh, were Nancy Pelosi, uh, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, all, uh, McConnell, all, we're talking about, this is how McConnell, when we, when you hear these stories about how the, how Hunter Thompson was ready, this is, this is Speaker McConnell, Leader McConnell, not Speaker, Leader McConnell. Uh, he's Kentucky, and um, he's a senator from Kentucky as well. And this is, we're describing his childhood here, just as we are. Uh, also Joe Biden's, also Nancy Pelosi's, the cowboy culture, uh, you know, the, uh, the war culture. These kids were raised thinking about war. It's unbelievable. Uh, so we knew quite a bit about the Southern generals. Of course, now in Kentucky, they're thinking about the Civil War. So uh, Walter Kagey says, we knew, qu- knew quite a bit about the Southern generals and read in detail about the battles. Um, and next to Bates Court, where we lived, there was a woods. And that's where we played, listen to this, folks, North-South. Does this begin to explain to you, uh, Leader McConnell? Uh, that's the critical thing, says Walter Kagey. Uh, north, south. We passed letters back and forth over enemy lines. Hunter was General Thompson of the Virginia 2nd Cavalry. His base was Fort Lee. Mine was the Army of Central Georgia. We made, listen to this, special control stamps and special cancellations. Uh, Hunter, of course, I think I, last time I think I talked about uh, meeting Hunter in a hotel and going down to the restaurant. And Hunter, everything to Hunter is turns into, well, it turned into a war. Uh, we took the sugar cubes. We went into the restaurant. There was nobody there. Uh, and Hunter uh, turned over the sugar cubes at the tables and started to write code for the CIA. And um, now I had never been able to know. Maybe I didn't even know whether he was trying to foil a CIA plot with that code or start a CIA plot. But this is how he thought. And by the way, I understood it completely. And then uh, when I talked to Hunter, I said, uh, Hunter, I had no idea that you thought that you think of yourself 
as being from the South. And I said, I've always felt like a Southerner. And I always felt like I was born in defeat. And I may have written everything I've written just to win back a victory. My life may be pure revenge. Isn't that interesting? So Judy Willens, Whitehead, his childhood friend. Hunter was a Southerner, she says. But Rhett Butler and Hunter had nothing in common. John Bruton says, I remember we played doctor with the girls. One of the girls was, and he doesn't say, begins with Miss M. She is now a very proper lady, says John. She married a guy named blank. We're not going to say his name. He had a room just off our, and we had a room just off our garage where we played doctor. Hunter and a bunch of us took Miss M into the back room and we had her pull down her pants and we looked. And I remember somebody drew what it looked like on the wall. It was marvelous. Dear Miss M, her father, her father was one of the most respected doctors in Louisville. Walter Katie says, you know, I gave Hunter his first writing job when he was 10. You know, Walter Kage turned out to be a very famous history professor. He graduated from Harvard, and then he went to uh, University of Chicago. Uh, Walter says, I started and edited the Southern Star. It was printed on my father's office mimeograph machine. Later, I hand-set it with rubber type. It was four cents a copy. I published and edited it for three years. Here's Hunter's first one. Well, I don't know if it's his first story. It's a story. Um, it has the headline, Hawks AC. That means Hawks Athletic Club. Turn pro and form all-stars. The Hawks AC have changed the name of their club to the Highland All-Stars. Coach Brecky Speed is a great help to the team. Players get paid between 20 and 25 cents a month. <laughs> That's what they turn pro. Is that adorable? But, you know, it's well written. Uh, so he's like 10 or 12 when he write, wrote that. Ching uh, Terrell says, Hunter organized a baseball team one year. It was called the Cherokee Colonels. Hunter, of course, was a shortstop. Everybody in those days did a, a bit of stamp collecting. Hunter and Duke Rice formed a stamp company. Uh, can you imagine the energy of these kids? Stamp kind of sold to the little guys. To earn more money, we'd go to Walgreens and buy those cheesy folding stools for a buck a piece. And then we'd take them to the infield at the Kentucky Derby and sell them for five bucks a piece. Uh, and then we bet the money. <laughs> there was, Ching uh, Carroll said, there was virtually nowhere we couldn't go as youngsters. It is so different back then. Now we have to walk our kids to school until fourth grade. They have to be picked up at school. They have to be walked to school. They have to be looked over. And back in these days, you could go anywhere, do anything you want. Uh, uh, that downtown was ours, says Chingtail. We had the run of the city. Bikes gave us an awful lot of mobility. I think a lot of my listeners, uh, I think a lot of my listeners uh, had this freedom growing up. There was virtually nowhere we uh, couldn't go, right? So, uh, and then Ching Terrell says, we were 
fearless little boys. On Saturdays, we went to the movies uh, with bean shooters. The trick was to get a whole mouthful of beans and blow them out like a machine gun. And that's what we did in the movies in those days. And then Hunter discovered girls. The girl that he discovered was Judy Wellens. Hunter walked down the street with his saunder and kind of hit her on the arm. And I thought, that's horrible. What's he messing around with girls for? And Judy Millen says, well, okay, Hunter. We got off the bus and my dog always used to come and meet me. My little dog named Dubby. And she was just a little black dog. <laughs> oh, God, I hate to tell you what happens. Whenever my sisters and I would fight, the dog would get all excited and bite my sister. So I was telling Hunter this story. And I said, so, I said, you better never hurt me while my dog is around because she'll bite you. And Hunter said, oh, yeah? And I said, yeah. So he hauls off and kicks my dog across the street. Jim Thompson, Hunter's younger brother. Now, mother's uh, a tall woman. She's five, eight or nine and pretty substantial, but not fat either. Robust, I guess. She's never worn slacks or pants a day in her life. My mother had to leave the University of Michigan, one of the great schools, because the family ran out of money. She was a swimmer and she played uh, uh, tennis. She rode horses. This is back in the 20s. At one point in her life, she had a horse. And my mother gave us a long leash, let us go as long as we wanted on our own until we messed up, and then there might be discipline, maybe. She was not a nagger, but she had three boys. There was Hunter, then my brother Davidson, who was three years younger than Hunter, and then me. He's four and a half years younger. She had an awful leather strap that she kept in a drawer with the cloth napkins, and she would bring it out, that strap, and it was horrible looking, and it had a buckle on it. And that's all she'd have to do. She'd say, well, let's see, we got this strap here. What are we going to do with this strap? And, th and that would quiet us down. I could never, I cannot remember being hit by my mother, he says. Uh, she would probably admit today that she spoiled as rotten. If she had to do it over again, she probably would have clamped down a little harder. We all made C's in school. And uh, Jeff Porter, a close friend of the Thompson family, says, um, I think there's something of the Southern Belle about Virginia Thompson, though Southern Belle is not a fair description because it implies a shrinking violet or an emptied uh, sort of mannered type of youth. Uh, useful femininity, which is very old. So that was not Virginia Thompson. She was a brilliant, insightful realist. She hates uh, decorum, uh, and she d hates phonies, and she hates anybody being phony for the appearance of uh, just being proper. Um, so Virginia is a very... Well, she's a very interesting mother to have, as you will hear as we go on. Jim Thompson says, My mother is sharp. She's intelligent, but not in a bookish, schoolish kind of way. She's very dry, uh, sense of humor, cynical. Uh, but she'd probably stake a claim to being an optimist. She's kind of a stiff upper lip 
optimist, even in the face of absolute tragedy. I rarely see her cry. I've never seen her mad, never seen her, excuse me, raging mad. She's solid, even keeled, a Roosevelt Democrat, good, strong liberal, a strong libertarian. She doesn't know it. She's almost radical in that regard. So now you can see where Hunter got that. But my mother uh, was not at all physical. She never hugged us, never kissed us, never, never. I don't remember ever being touched by my mother in an affectionate way. No, hell no. No, there wasn't any of that in my family. So I say to Hunter, Hunter, how's your mother? Hunter says to me, She's at home sharpening her teeth. Jim Thompson said, my mother was not particularly feminine. She carried her suffering, I would say, respectfully as a woman. But I don't think she was out to win anybody's heart. I never saw her flirt or romance or carry on. Sex was not a big issue in our house. It wasn't discussed. Uh... When it came time to talk about sex, my mother gave me a book. Probably the same with Hunter and Davidson. The book was called Being Born. I ne- I remember we were fascinated by it because it showed a woman's breasts, uh, a woman getting ready to breastfeed her baby. And we would all turn to that page and gather around and look at this picture. It showed cows and baby cows and baby sheep, sex, was really downplayed. Cheng tells says the girls just loved Hunter. Well, I'll attest to that. Women loved Hunter. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Did the women love Hunter? And uh, Cheng Charles says, I remember going down to the Highland Presbyterian Church to a youth group called The League. Well, there's now a dating app called The League. Um, so their youth group, the Presbyterian youth group, was called The League. It was every Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock, and that's where we did our very close dancing. And you all know what he's talking about. Remember that in grade school? We turned the lights out, and we had the jukebox, and we do that close dancing. Our nuns call it the St. John's Clinch. Um, and the girls, says Ching Chill, they all wanted to dance with Hunter. Susan Barnes is there, known as Susan Peabody. When Hunter came back here for the Castlewood reunion in 1990, she was the one he wanted to see. He asked me to give her a call. Susan Peabody says, have you heard about the bracelet Hunter gave me, this ID bracelet? It was engraved silver ID bracelet with my name on the front and his on back. Hey, listener, you had an ID bracelet, right? Listeners, you you all had them. I had them. Mine was Bobby Simmons. Bobby Simmons, I scratched my initials into it. Uh, just first name, Susan and Hunter. I don't remember ever kissing Hunter, says Susan Peabody. Uh, he was not forward, excepting in his wildness. Hunter sexually was shy. And so was I. Hunter Thompson. Uh, uh, <laughs> we'll just skip that. Uh, so uh, I said to Hunter, um, Hunter, um, 
you went to Presbyterian uh, activities, Presbyterian activities, Hunter, what, what? And he says, well, we had special activities. <laughs> At night, we'd all taken up to smoking pipes and we'd go to Walgreens drugstore and across in the library. We got these pipes, he says, of tobacco and we sneaked out of Sunday school and smoked pipes on the stairs of the church. So that explains that. So I say, Hunter, did any of this Presbyterian, Presbyterianism, uh, teaching about free will affect you? I remember reading all up on Presbyterian free will before I uh, did had this conversation with Hunter. Now I can't remember um, exactly if the Presbyterians believe in free will or don't believe in free will. But anyway, and Hunter says, didn't matter to me what the fuck they were doing. I said, well, did it influence your life? And Hunter said, I paid no attention. And then I said, but Hunter, you do live existentially. And then Hunter says, Sunday school was a fun gang. And I said, did you ever pray? And Hunter rolls his eyes uh, as in an answer. And I said, when you, when you were young, did you go through a holy period? And Hunter says, no. Uh, Judy Wellens Whitehead sends me a fax at midnight and it says, Dear Jean, probably it's not important, but I realize I told the tale wrong and want to correct it. The story about my dog, Dubby, who would always protect me, I think I said that Hunter kicked the dog wrong. He slapped the hell out of me. He wanted to see if my dog would attack anyone who hurt me, as I claimed. Of course, the dog did nothing. <laughs> well, I reeled in whirling stars. I don't know how I got that so wrong. As I remember, Hunter always liked dogs. And I will second that. Hunter loved dogs. Uh, Jenny Daniel says, oh, Hunter was a fox. I mean, you daydreamed about Hunter. At 12, I go home to my bedroom and think, God, I'd like to kiss Hunter. Uh, he was just sexy. Sexy, but beyond that, there was a quality in Hunter that I think always stayed with me, that I always look for in a man, that it's this arrogance. He had a walk that was cool. Well, if you listen to part one, I described the walk. One leg is shorter than the other, and it's like watching a uh, Hunter's walk is elbow is lifted up behind him and he's sort of uh his legs sort of jut out like a a laker girl you know the dance group the laker girls um <laughs> maybe in high school maybe in grade school but I, you know anyway so jenny down says he had a cool walk and then she said i wonder if he walks that way now well no uh jenny no he doesn't walk that way now and uh, and she says he was a leader. Hunter was a leader of the gang, which we had. And I still have this fantasy. I daydream about being in bed with Hunter. If Hunter and I ever got together, good God. I met him at 12. I had just moved into the neighborhood and I went out to play and I was introduced to the kids on the block. And there was this big buildup and they said, and here's Hunter. And his first question to me was, Listeners, can you guess what it was? What was the most important thing to Hunter Thompson? 
He says to her, are you a Yankee or a Southerner? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I think I'm a Yankee or something. And so he said, that's the wrong choice. And I had this little hat on and he took my hat and threw it down in the mud and I fought. And I mean, we actually fought. And he said, from now on, you're going to be a Southerner. This is it. Well, a lot of girls felt like I did. But, uh, says Jenny Daniels. A lot of girls felt like I did, but a lot of girls were also afraid of Hunter because he was dangerous. And they said he was wild. But he thrilled me. And when we had slumber parties, it was like, ooh, Hunter. Hunter would be the one we would always try to call and ask, what do you look like naked, Hunter? But some girls said, oh, my mother thinks he's just too wild. But I never said that because I secretly wanted to be Hunter's girl. Uh, Lewis Mathis, uh, high school, uh, childhood friend, uh, he's now a lawyer, uh, in Shelbyville. Uh, he says, I was down from Shelbyville seeing Hunter and we were, uh, either walking or riding our bikes. But anyway, we were, over on Lexington Road, where there's this little grocery store, and Hunter walks in that grocery store and just picked up what he wanted, candy bars, potato chips, and I think he even took a soft drink and put it in his pocket and just walked out. It scared me to death. I said, my Lord, I'll be, I'd be in jail for that. He just walked right out. I have never forgotten it. It scared the hell out of me, let me tell you. Ching Charles says, Hunter and I met these guys from Shelbyville at Presbyterian Camp, and we started visiting back and forth. We loved going up to Shelbyville County Fair, and that's where we saw our first stripper. Now, you know these guys had never seen a naked girl, because uh, this is before Playboy came out. You could not get a gawk at a naked woman. And so that's they see their Hunter and his gang, the Shelbyville boys and the Louisville boys see their first stripper. And it's at the Shelby County Fair. And she's in a tent, says Ching Cheryl, and not particularly attractive. She was old. She was probably 28, right? Anyway, uh, Ching says, or she seemed old to us little boys at the time. And not very glamorous, says Ching. This was a sort of the end of the stripping circuit out here in rural Kentucky, but there was a sort of anatomical interest in little boys, especially Hunter. Uh, and they weren't especially wonderfully smooth strippers like you get in a burlesque house with the long gloves. No, they had music. They'd be on a stage lit up so we could see them. And they took off their outfits. Oh, boy. And they did remarkable things with ping pong balls and with cigarettes. And you all know what I'm talking about, right? And if you don't, look it up. I remember the stripper popping a ping pong ball out of her vagina. And we thought that was pretty amazing. And she smoked a cigarette with her vagina. And she just stuck it in there. And Hunter and Lewis and I clapped. Oh, my God. Lewis Mathis, 
says, the strippers were just in an old tent. They got up on the stage and the people started money, throwing money at him. We didn't have any money. So honey, Hunter tried to steal some of the girls money off the stage. Oh boy. Now here's from Porter. Bib, we're going to leave the girls, uh, the stripper girls. Can you imagine how hard their life must have been? Traveling at the Shelby County Fair. Oh, my God, those poor women. Anyway, uh, back to Porter Bibb. Porter Bibb is in the first ranks, the first circles uh, of society. Porter Bibb was the first first publisher of Rolling Stone. He is, uh, you know, a financier, and he's going to lay it out for us here. Hunter had an exotic appeal for the very richest girls in Louisville. I mean, Arabella Berry. Uh, Listeners, I have changed her name. Her father was one of the two or three richest people in five states. He shot at Hunter one night when he brought Arabella home late. Arabella was the youngest of the... There were several sisters, and they were all famous. You guys can probably figure out who I'm talking about. They were just the greatest party girls imaginable and hospitable to a fault. You come in, and there's if you're thirsty, you had the sweep of the liquor cabinet, pull out a case of bourbon or whatever you need. We all felt this was owed to us, especially because we were male and especially because we were the accepted males. We were in such demand. The mothers of the debutantes would put up with the most tremendous amounts of outrage on the part of the males just to keep enough people there to have partners for their daughters to dance with and sit at dinner parties with during debutante season. When Arabella Berry's father, isn't this fascinating? When Arabella Berry's father shot at Hunter, this was not a singular event. That happened all the time. I mean, other fathers shot at people. It's a hokey, chivalrous society where people would say, how dare you lay a hand on my daughter? On the other side, the daughter was the most experienced 14 or 15 or 16 or 17 year old imaginable. And everybody was playing this charade. The father was acting like a good Southern father was supposed to act. And the daughters were just trying to get along. It was also the end of a social era. When you got to be 16 in Louisville and you were of a certain echelon of male acceptability, Every single night in the summer, from the day that school ended until the day that school started, every day of the Christmas vacation, there was a major, major party, sometimes two, sometimes three, given by the debutantes. That was the system. That was meant, that meant extravagant, free alcohol for underage drinkers. I mean, this is all, you know, uh, Porter Gibb talking. I mean, total free bars, not bottles, cases, anything you wanted. 
and it all had the blessing of the establishment of Louisville. The mayor, the mayor's daughter, or the banker's daughter, or Sally Bingham, the father who owned the newspaper, or whatever. You were un... The Binghams went on to own the Wall Street Journal before they sold it to, um, you know, turd face. What's his name? You know, the Australian. The 2,000-year-old Australian guy. What's his name? I can't remember. Uh, Young males were untouchable. Hunter was an Anthonia, the most prestigious literary association in Louisville, and so Hunter was untouchable. We all started drinking at about 14. Isn't this amazing? I'm talking about bashes. This is Porter going on. I'm talking about bashes in homes, in clubs. They'd have a ball, and then they'd have a breakfast starting at four and ending at dawn, and there'd be a luncheon, and then there'd be a tea, and you got to the point where you were Cavalier, you'd steal six bottles of gin, get totally drunk, wake up 24 hours later, and know that there were three more parties. It just went on and on and on. Isn't this people wonder about Hunter Thompson? This is where it comes from. Judy Wellens Whitehead says, I had been out babysitting and was walking home, and all of a sudden, the, the sky that Hunter got into all sorts of trouble with. His name was Sam Stallings. He's going to appear in a little bit, guys. Sam Stallings, who was just this horrible asshole. Hunter and Sam pull up, and they're obviously drinking. And Sam was driving. And Sam was just this horrible person, just horrible, evil. And he was evil from the time he was a child. I mean, I knew him in school. He didn't think anything of breaking somebody's arm or hurting somebody real bad. Sam went on to, I think, Princeton. Uh, he was kind of real soft and fat, and he was one of those kinds of kids. Okay? They pulled up, and they said, get in the car, Judy. Well, you know, with Hunter, I'd do anything for Hunter. I always loved him, so i get in the car. And they got really violent with me. I mean, Hunter, too. And I ended up jumping out of the moving car to get away from him. I hurt myself real bad. I had to tell my parents that I fell up steps coming home because I was so banged up. I had to jump out of a moving car. I jumped out and ran as fast as I could, bleeding and all. And now back to Porter Bibb. Porter says, I come from the Louisville's, one of the Louisville's first families. My mother was a Clark. George Roger Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition settled in Louisville. One of my grandmothers lived on the estate outside of the city, which became the University of Louisville. My other grandmother lived in the neighborhood that Hunter lived in. It was nice, upscale, middle-class neighborhood. Hunter and I came to know each other through the semi-social, semi-serious Antonium Literary Association, which included you know, only 12 or 14 people each year from all over the city where there were probably eight or 10 schools, uh, you know, representing sophomores, juniors, and seniors. It was a very big deal. Hello. Hello, Guff. My dog just walked in. Uh, 
it was a very, very big deal. And if you got into Antonym, if you stuck around Louisville, you were made for life. It was a hundred-year-old organization, very seriously taken. It published every year a literary magazine. This is probably like the Harvard Lampoon, except um, Louisville style. style. Uh, it published every year a literary magazine. The ostensible purpose was we met every Saturday night, and after a little protocol of business each week, Somebody had to render something, had to give a reading of a poem or a short story or some nonfiction piece of writing that he had created, and we would comment on it. Uh, Ching Terrell and Neville were members. Hunter was censor. Can you believe it? <laughs> censor! The censor was meant to cease and desist any activity starting with writing that was not up to standard. It was an honorary position. I didn't think anyone at the time ever thought Hunter was going to have a career as a writer. But there it is. Uh, and the best of the things that we wrote ended up in the Antonian Literary Magazine. Robert Penn Warren was a member. The ostensible reason was literary. The real purpose was the members presented the debutantes each year. When they came out in Louisville, okay, there's the real, it was a glorified upscale stud farm. One of these Southerners, huh? Uh, so Ching Terrell says, by that way, Ching went on to become uh, vice president of a bank and run a literary a agency. Uh, Hunter went on to jail several times, says Ching. Never for any lengthy period of time. Uh, he and several others trashed a filling station on Bardstown Road. I know I ended up in jail. They caused some serious damage. And I think there may have been a time or two the police came and got him from Male High. Uh, Male High is where Hunter went to school. He started out at Atherton. And then it's, I've tried to find out if he was kicked out, whether he was sent out, whether he quit. Anyway, he ended up at Male High. And Mail High, of course, is one of the great public schools in America. Um, they came and they took Hunter away in handcuffs. Uh, and J Ching was at Mail then. And um, they uh, did not see him being taken away in handcuffs. But many people did see Hunter being taken away in handcuffs. Uh, Porter Bibb says, white bucks, khakis white button-down Brooks Brothers shirt, leather belt, and Shetland sweater. That was the uniform. We all remember this uniform, right, listeners? All remember. Rupert Murdoch, thank you, Kath. That's whose name I couldn't remember. Uh, he bought it from the Bingham family, from Sally Bingham. Uh, that was the uniform. Crew cuts. We all wore crew cuts. Well, we all dated guys like this, right? Uh, Castlewood Athletic Club was the feeder to Antonium. It was like a farm system. And Hunter was a big star at Castlewood. Uh, but only a very small proportion of Castlewood guys got into Antonium. Very small portion. And that gave Hunter a lot of currency. So he was kind of multi-level. He hobnobbed with several cliques. This also is very indicative of what Hunter ended up doing in his career. He 
he would uh, just as easily hang out with Hell's Angels uh, on his motorcycle and get into fights with the Hell's Angels. And by the way, if you haven't read his Hell's Angels book, read it, as he would with McGovern and Nixon uh, and the big uh Warren Beatty, you know, all the big politicals of the time. He would just go back and forth. He was accepted. Hunter could was accepted by everybody. Everybody in New York loved him. Everybody in Colorado loved him. They loved him in L.A. He could go and do uh, anything. He was not a chameleon. He was always like Hunter. Um, so uh, when Porter Bibb says he hobnobbed with several clicks, he hobnobbed with several clicks. Uh, and the very top athletes who were untouchable in high school, they all knew Hunter. He was a Hunter was a gentleman athlete. He was not a competitive athlete. He never went out for anything. Can you imagine if Hunter would go out for something? I don't think so. Um, Hunter wouldn't go out for him if he wasn't absolutely one hundred percent positive that he'd make it. Um, I don't know why Hunter uh, didn't he, you know, I have no idea. He's certainly built like an athlete, 6'3", you know, big guy. Um, anyway, so, and then Gerald Terrell says, there was uh, somebody who broke into churches, broke into schools, petty vandalism, notes were left, and notes were signed, the wreckers. A lieutenant on the police force shadowed Hunter for a year, but he couldn't pin it on him. To this day, nobody knows if Hunter was a wrecker. So I say to Hunter, Hunter, are you a wrecker? And Hunter says to me, call AAA. <laughs> call AAA. Jim Thompson, uh, Hunter's youngest brother, said, Hunter had all the freedom he wanted. My mother gave him a carte blanche, take the car, take the keys, come back anytime you want. He often stayed out all night long. My mother would sit up. She'd sit up there in the window. I hated to see mommy sitting up, smoking down by the window. She got very worried. And Hunter just abused his freedom and eventually ended up, uh, okay, in jail. And uh, he was just up to mischief. He wasn't a rotten kid. Uh, my mother always ha hammers the point that Hunter was innocent and the other two were guilty. Uh, we're going to hear what happened. Susan Peabody Barnes, the childhood sweetheart of Hunter. When Hunter started getting into trouble, part of our minds said, wow, this guy, this guy has balls. And the other part was shocked. I have a feeling... It has to do with his father's death, and his mother was a pretty good alcoholic. It was the, probably the big key to Hunter. A lot of people think that the mother's alcoholism is a big key to Hunter. I'll let you all make up your mind. Hunter was very private about it, about his whole family. He was full, says Susan Peabody, full. Filled with anger. Jim Thompson says, Yes, my mother's father had a drinking problem. He had a terrible time with alcohol. Then she did, my own mother, several major bouts after she lost her husband in 1952. 
I've been around so many hideous circumstances involving alcohol that I cannot even picture getting drunk once, says Jim. I've seen the ugly, ugliest possible side to that whole story. And you all know uh, what Hunter's uh, drug intake was. I started off part one listing just the drugs he took in 24 hours. Uh, my grandmother, uh, this is Jim talking, Hunter's younger brother. My grandmother moved in with us after my father died, Lucille Hunter Ray, the infamous Mimo. Hunter holds her up on a pedestal. She was a great woman, a strong, solid woman, definitely equal, very old, beautiful, flowing white hair. She had all that hair pinned up, and she wore these funny old lady shoes with the big toe sticking out at the end. And she always wore these ancient dresses and brooches. And she had a girdle. And one day she showed me how it worked. She wore it, I think, probably every day. Well, just like our grandmas, right? My grandma wore her girdle every single day. Um, and she was quiet. She was stately. She was sensitive. She wasn't the fluttery type at all. And she never lost her temper. She saw us through all those drunken episodes. When we were young, she pulls aside and says, your mother is sick. She's not feeling well. And of course, the sickness would be preceded by all sorts of hell raising, screaming and struggling and crying and slamming of doors. And my mother's sick. Hunter had a real short fuse with all this stuff. I don't think he's ever gotten over it, says Jim. I remember once seeing him. He had a little fit. The phone was on the landing on the steps. There were two stairs down to the first floor. I saw him probably once or twice, three times, when my mother was racing to the phone to call for help, ripping the wire out of the wall and knocking her back. Terrible, terrible image. Terrible. It wasn't like she was tumbling down 50 stairs and being severely injured, but he pushed her down the stairs. Brutal, brutal stick. Brutal scene. Screaming and Hunter not handling it well at all. He was intolerant and mean. Uh, one of his childhood friends who does not want her name revealed said Virginia was a serious alcoholic. Hunter pushed her down the stairs uh, maybe a couple times. He couldn't put up with it as a kid. He didn't know how to deal with it any other way. It was the only way he had to try and stop her from drinking. I don't think he had a great childhood, she says. And so when Virginia was down and out, like when she was on one of her binges, then I would go over and, you know, kind of clean up the house. And Hunter never talked about his mother's drinking. He beat her once. Pretty bad. I came over and tried to help her and bring her soup and stuff like that. He was in the room, but he wouldn't acknowledge that I was there. My mother would say, oh, uh, my mother the not 
Virginia. This is the woman whose name we're not using. It was her mother would say, oh, Virginia's drinking again. And the mother and the woman whose name we're not using would go over and see her. And the woman's name we're not using, her mother could not deal with it. So you can imagine if these adults couldn't deal with Virginia, what it was like for Hunter. Um, she was, uh, the woman whose name we're not using says she was always in bed. She was incoherent. She was just slovenly. Uh, all the responsibility of the family, the three boys fell on her shoulders. She couldn't handle it. On the other hand, the woman whose name we're not going to use says, Virginia was very smart and funny and creative. But if Hunter were your son, wouldn't you drink? Uh, Chain Terrell says, Hunter drinking during school was really a myth. He wouldn't drink and come to school. He'd leave school and drink. Porter Bibb says, Louisville is a big alcoholic place. The two biggest industries in Louisville are liquor and tobacco. Well, there's a third, of course. Oh, oh, yeah, he says that. There are about 20 distilleries. We all know what the Kentucky bourbon, Jesus. There were about 20 distilleries in and around. No, I'm not drinking bourbon. I'm drinking water. Hang on. There are about 20 distilleries in and around Louisville, plus the tobacco plants. And then there's the gambling. Well, no, there's no gambling. You don't gamble on horses because horses are a sure thing. (laughs) Judy Wellens Whitehead says, Hunter didn't have any respect for his mother at all. None. He said terrible things about her. He was really angry. He was angry all the time because his family life was such shit. Well, you know how it was. They they had this little boy, Jim, that was a shining golden little boy, and everybody made over Jim, and Hunter was just going through these terrible things. He lost his father. Those were very unhappy years, but Anthonyum saved him. Ching saved him. That's the only thing. That was his anchor. Uh, Ching Terrell says, well, there was certainly an implied code with the institutions Hunter grew up with. I'm talking about the Castlewood Athletic Club and the Anthonyum. With Castlewood, it was a self-governing group where there was serious hazing going on and very much a sense of elitism. He was also oriented as we all know, towards a southern chivalry. Very twisted, uh, very uh, strange sort of chivalry. Have you heard of Anthonyum Hill? Well, that was where we had our parties. You know what amazes me about Ching Chong? He thinks we've heard of Anthonyum Hill. Apparently, it's a famous place in Louisville. I had not heard of it. Maybe you have. Um, Maybe Senator McConnell has. That was where we had our parties. That was an important deal to Hunter. We'd go up to the top after Anthony of meetings or wherever we or wherever and have bonfires. Basically, we'd go up there with girls and we'd drink a lot of beer and make out. We'd sing and tell stories and all the things you do around a bonfire while you're drinking as much beer as you possibly can. You know fear and loathing in Las Vegas? Early in that book, he Hunter wrote 
about the glee of gathering his supplies. 42 tabs of this, two bags of grass, and a salt shaker of this, and two pumps of ether. That's exactly the way he was in high school. He loved gathering up for the big party. He thought that was grand. We have 72 beers, he'd say. The important thing was that we had beer, but the really important thing was we had 72 beers and he had two and a half quarts of bourbon and we had a pint and a half of gym and we were going to have a big party. He had a unique glee in planning. And when I read this part of the book, I said, same old guy. And by the way, when I was out there on one of my trips doing this biography, we had uh, his Japanese um, translators were coming. And we spent a day gathering supplies for the arrival of the Japanese translators. And it was exactly as Hunter describes in the book. He did, and exactly what Ching Gerald says, the glee. And we all know it, you know. Hang on, I have to get some more water. The glee of gathering. Nobody did it better than Hunter. It was this childlike uh, joy. Uh, it's too bad, you know. <laughs> it's too bad that every day can't be that way. So Porter Bibb says, I had a lot of confidence, um, but Hunter had a lot of confidence. It came from an intuitive understanding that he was smarter, stronger, and quicker than the kids we were running with in society. You can pick up a lot of confidence knowing that people who you, who are the establishment, the power structure, that they're not that impressive. I think, uh, I think right there what Porter Bibb just said sort of also explains Hunter. He was totally confident. Because uh, he was smarter than almost everybody. And uh, if you remember from part one, he explained, you have no idea what it's like being hit with so many thousands of ideas at once. Uh, Lou Ann Murphy, Eiler says, she's a childhood. Now, Lou Ann, Lou Ann's picture was hanging. It was still hanging in Hunter's kitchen when I was there. That's Lou Ann, quite beautiful. Lou Ann Murphy, Lou Ann Murphy Eiler as she is now. Um, the only man in my life until I was 14 to tell me that he loved me was Hunter. He was dashing. I remember that he literally carried my books and rode the bus home with me. And I remember his arm touching mine. And I remember the hairs of my arms stood up straight. We went to Atherton together. And then he switched to uh, uh, Mail Louisville. Louisville Mail. Louisville. Uh, what is the name of that school? It's Louisville Mail. Louisville Mail. Louisville. Louisville Mail, oh, shall I stop right now and look it up? Anyway, she says, they all just call it Mail, okay? So I don't know these. I did know it at one time. I don't know it. And, uh, all the interviewees just refer to it as Mail, okay? And it was one of the great public schools. Uh, it was like Choate or, uh, uh, you know, one of the, you know, Trinity, or, you know, at one of the great prep schools. Um, so she says, when he switched to mail within six weeks, I don't know what happened. I know that he got into 
some kind of trouble. And I think they ask him to leave. Um, uh, when, okay. I got that completely screwed up. They were at Atherton High School together, well-known high school in Louisville. And Hunter got in trouble at Atherton. And she doesn't know what kind of trouble he got into. We have some theories about what happened. Uh, but uh, he switched to Mail. So, okay. And Mail is like the one of the great prep schools. So, uh, and then he got asked to leave Atherton, so he goes to Mail. Walter Kagey, remember the history professor, says Luann was everybody's dream girl. She was lovely. I remember her in long, long dresses and floppy socks. Hunter either left or got kicked out of Atherton, says Walter Kagey, or had trouble with the football team. The football team reportedly beat him up, roughed him up. I'm not sure. I can't imagine. I, I'm not, I could, you know, this is Eugene talking, not Walter. I can't imagine a, t- a team doing this to Hunter because he was so, so good around other boys. Uh, anyway, Walter heard, heard that they roughed him up. I completely doubt that. Um, and then anyway, Walter Kay says he started to talk about male high and they sort of helped him make up his mind. He said, let's, let's leave. So Hunter goes, here, here's the whole name. Louisville Male High School, Porterville, was one of the most prestigious public schools in the country. They sent people to Yale, Harvard, Princeton. They had teachers who turned down professorships at Ivy League uh, colleges. The year I graduated from Mail, they brought girls in and that was almost as class cataclysmic as introducing blacks and it became Louisville male and girls. And the next year after we left, they introduced blacks and all this was in a tremendous state of turmoil. These are the days, uh, Gerald Chingtel says, some people say Hunter changed when his father died, but I say it was more, more, more than that. Hunter was really keen on sports, the big organizer, short-stopping the baseball team. He wanted to be the quarterback of the football team. But at Castlewood, he was just an end, the receiver. Uh, He was on the Highland Junior High basketball team. He wasn't a starter, but he was there. And then in 10th grade, what happened? He hadn't grown. Everybody else had grown. He didn't get his growth for another year. And then, of course, he shot up like three feet. Uh, but he didn't get his growth, and then it became apparent he was not really a gifted athlete. And he was not going to be a gifted athlete. And his fantasies about being an athlete with the death of his father all caused him to look for another outlet for his energy, and he started getting in trouble. Neville Blakemore says... Well, I went on to Princeton. Ching uh, and Bib uh, and Porter went on to Yale. Uh, my theory of Hunter's dissatisfaction from society is based on family circumstances and economics. If you go look, I mean, he's trying to describe why everybody else went on to these great schools and Hunter went to jail. And here's 
what Neville Blackmore thinks. Uh, you know, they all go on to these great Ivy League schools, and Hunter doesn't. So uh, Neville Blackmore says, if you look at the houses where Hunter lived and the houses where many of his contemporaries, you know, the Antonian boys lived and the debutantes, you'll see there's a difference in circumstances that's still apparent today. And I think when it became the spring, somebody asked Hunter, hey, where are you going to college? And he said, I don't know, I don't know, but somewhere I overheard that. And I imagine at the time, there was almost desperation or frustration in his voice. I thought that Hunter's circumstances were such that the family simply couldn't afford to send him away to college anywhere. And that by this point, he had compromised, had gotten a bad record at mail, and, and probably could not have earned any scholarships. So I think he saw his contemporaries carrying on, and he was unable to do so himself. And this turned from hurt to disappointment to anger and rage and frustration. I think that accounts for some of the violence and the vandalism. Uh, And Ching really disagrees with me. He says that it started at Castlewood. Remember the athletic club. Hunter couldn't compete athletic with a lot of the people when it came after the death of his father. Whatever, uh, what, whatever that was, had to do with it, Hunter was definitely frustrated. I don't think it was a single event or a single episode. No, I think it was cumulative, a cumulative effect of losing out. Remember, Hunter. This is E.G. now, John. Hunter was at the peak. He was. He was one of the. You know. 12 guys in all of Louisville, the, the, you know, the chosen, the glamour boys. Uh, they are the ones who introduced the debutantes when they came out. Uh, he was in Castle at Athletic Club. He was everything. And then they all go on, and he has no money and has no – his academics are horrible. As Jim said, they always got C's. He can't get a scholarship. What's he going to do? So um, he was – so um, – Neville Blakemore says, so he turned, Neville's word is sinister. Ann Willis Noonan, now Ann Willis Noonan is a friend of of Hunter's and remained a friend as they grew older. Uh, She says, when we were all growing up in Louisville, I would hear stories about this absolute terrorist, Hunter Thompson. He was the local madman. I briefly went out with his brother Davidson and then married one of Hunter's best friends, Billy Noonan. Uh, now I know that Neville Blakemore, uh, I know him pretty well and he comes from a very fancy family. He married a very fancy person, but Neville's got it wrong. I, here's what Ann says. She says, I think Hunter always hated what Louisville stood for what it stood for then and what it will always stand for. It was a boring, provincial, middle-class, family-oriented town that had nothing going for it except the Derby for two minutes a year. You know, that sort of strikes me as probably the correct reading. What do you think? Uh, I think... I think Ann nails it here. Uh, she goes on to say, the bottom line is Hunter 
would not have wanted to fit in. Believe me, both Ching Tao and Neville come from families whose Louisville roots go way back, and they met this wonderful, iconoclastic kid, and Hunter couldn't wait to get out of there. And then Neville Blakemore says, do you know Owl Creek? That's the name of the country club here in town. Of course, Hunter named his ranch Owl Farm. And in fact, it's real near where Louis Reynolds, uh, Louise, excuse me, Louise Reynolds used to live. Reynolds of Reynolds Aluminum. And Hunter used to date her. Maybe she's the one that got away. Luann Murphy Eiler says, I don't know how we parted. I don't know when we broke up. Yes, I remember my mo- oh, my mother. I remember now. My mother laid down the law. She said, if I ever saw Hunter again, I would never see him again. And would be sent away. I don't think Hunter ever knew how much I loved him. I want to tell him now. I want him to know it. Every time I was getting ready to tell him long ago, he would do something destructive, and I couldn't tell him. Judy Wellens Whitehead said, I used to go visit him in jail. That's where Hunter started writing. He was about to graduate from high school, but he couldn't graduate because he was in jail. He was 17 years old, terrible. And But Sam Stallings, we've heard from about him earlier, didn't go to jail. Ralston Steenrod, he didn't go to jail. Everybody else had money. They all got out and went to college. Steenrod went to Princeton. And Hunter was the only one because he couldn't afford. Nobody could afford to pay Hunter's way. So he went to jail. Jail was horrible. It was just dirty. The Jefferson County Jail, oh, it was just nasty. And when I went to visit him, it was uh, one of those glass partitions with all smeared up lip prints. I mean, he was such a child to be going through this. And these horrible people that were in there with him, he didn't cry, but he was sad. It wasn't Hunter at all. He looked, oh, he looked terrible, like everybody who looks in jail. He wasn't eating anything, and he was just so ashamed. He was just really embarrassed. I mean, his life was just taken away from him. And Hunter was not a person you would ever can find. Uh, I'm sure you can see that now. You just can't picture him confined. And there, there, there he was, seething. But, says Judy, that's really where he started writing. It was the beginning of his life all over again. And that's part two of the Hunter Thompson oral biography. Next time, <laughs> next time we will hear what happens as my visit to Owl Farm continues and Hunter Thompson proposes marriage to me. And Hunter Thompson removes all my clothes with a knife, or actually a machete, and so on and so on. So until part three, my darlings, remember what I always say. Fate loves the fearless.
her on the phone. Call her on the phone. When you're all alone, call and ask Eugene. Ask Eugene. Ask Eugene.